I'd like to ask you a question from the bowels of Roman history. How many of you walk around saying, oh, thank Augustus? Any takers? Anybody ever said, thank Augustus? I didn't think so, because we're not Romans. But they had an emperor, Augustus, and we might, if we're in a spiritual moment of authentic faith, we might say, thank God. If we're in another sort of mindset, we might say, thank God, and mean something else by it. But Romans could have said, thank Augustus. He was an emperor they had before the time of Christ, and he created what's called the Pax Romana. It's a Latin word for Roman peace. And this was before the time of Christ, and the Roman Empire managed to win enough military battles, create a strong enough economy, and a stable enough society to have the Pax Romana. And it was a sort of a golden age for the Roman Empire. Literature flourished a little bit, arts, entertainment, culture, right? Because when things get stable, People start to form business partnerships. They're not battling, so they devote more time to farming or more time to art or more time to family. So things get more stable, get more better. It's a golden age. That was going on in Rome at the time. And this was not just a little thing, just to let you know. I pulled up a Maps app on my computer, and the Roman Empire stretched from the northernmost part of England, which from your perspective, let's say is up here, the northern picture like where England and Scotland kind of meet that boundary right about there. The Roman Empire went from there all the way down to North Africa, all the way over to, let's see if I have it exactly here. So, so all the way across North Africa to kind of the end of Europe, and then all the way up to what we think of as like Russia, and then all the way back over to England and Scotland, which is about 12,000 miles if you drove it in this roughly square huge swath of the earth. Some estimates say a quarter of the entire world lived inside those boundaries. Enormous peace. 300 years later, the Roman Empire was gone, virtually collapsed, defeated by military battles and political intrigue and assassinations and all kinds of bad things going on. Rome's collapsed. There have been other empires and stable economies and golden ages since then, but still, no perfect, everlasting peace. And as I woke up this morning, at least me, I didn't feel like I woke up with perfect, everlasting peace. <laughs> but as I've been in worship, thanks to the sound of your voices, thanks to our musicians, I've started to go, I think my peace is increasing. If I had one of those peace meters, you know, that would do sort of one of these things, you know, it'd be like starting out down here this morning and like I'm just getting by, like I'm just flat. But then I come in here and I start praising and my sense of peace is increasing because I'm fixing my eyes on Jesus. I'm starting to remember, oh yeah, that's who he is. Oh yeah, that's what he does. We have a chance now to dive into that. I spoke last week about waiting, about anticipation. We keep talking about this. It's a central human experience to anticipate. Now, some of you anticipate the worst. You sort of can't help but think of what could go wrong. Some of you can't help but just sort of see the glasses half full. You just think of all the things that go right, all the things that go well. It's just like you're just kind of seeing the better side of life, the sunny side of life. God has given us a capacity for wondering that our will can't satisfy. I don't know if you think of negative things or positive things or it depends on the day, but each one of us has a capacity. The Bible says God set eternity in our hearts. So we're just kind of wondering about more than we can figure out. We dimly perceive these circumstances around us, and we, and we kind of dimly realize, well, the way, the way things are right now isn't the way they'll always be. That's why God waited centuries, building anticipation, building anticipation, building anticipation, and sending a Messiah in the fullness of time. 
And now we live in between Christ's arrivals. He has come as a baby and he will come as a king. And as we think about peace this morning and about anticipation, we get to hear anew that Christ is the one who fulfills all our anticipations. I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 33 is what we're going to read this morning. Mostly focusing on verse 32 and 33, but Luke chapter 1, I'll read 26 to 33 just so you can hear the full full paragraph, the full thought that scripture has. Verse 26 says, Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. The Pax Romana couldn't last, but the Pax Christus can't fail. Let's take a moment and pray. Father, we do praise you and glorify you. I didn't know how to praise you in Latin. I didn't know how to understand the peace that you bring until I used the internet and realized that you have given us that little ability just to use different languages and figure out how to talk about your peace. But the real truth is we know your peace in our hearts when we worship you, when we believe in you when we sing about you, when we pray to you, when we hear your word spoken. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill up this room with your presence, to fill up this room in a way that makes you greater than all the other stuff in our hearts and in our minds and our past and in our present so that we can say, just like the disciples did, we believe in you, we trust you, so that you can look to us and say, here's my peace, here's the peace that I give, not as the world gives, but here's the peace that I give. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Peace doesn't exist everywhere. Peace never has. But if we're honest, peace could mean lots of things. It's a word that gets thrown around quite a bit. And so I have some helpful resources, not the stump. We'll use this in a moment, but I'm going to move that over here. I I recognize that some of you have not a lot of time And others of you, though, have quite a bit of time. So this is a dictionary, which I have, but I would be more than happy to borrow you. You want to look up peace. It's not the Webster's Dictionary. It's like a Bible dictionary. So you turn to words in here, find peace, and it'll tell you, oh, in the book of Genesis, peace meant this. And then you skip ahead a few centuries, and you find out that in the Psalms, peace meant this. So that's here, if you want that. If some of you feel like that's a little bit too light, this one is here. It's thicker, as you can see. I'll hold them both up. And you can take both. I'm not seeing a lot of interest as I look at your faces, but they're both available. They're right there. This one is um, like more like intellectual if you're that kind of person. This one's a little easier to read, which is probably why it's thicker. I don't know. But they're both there. So you want some dictionary about peace right there. I'm going to make it a little easier. I did read these before this week, and I realized that peace means two things. First, it's a reconciled relationship with God. I just saved some of you like 375 pages. It's a reconciled relationship with God. Secondly, it's a heart resting in what God has done. 
There's another 500 pages for you saved. Now, would a story about peace, not definitions, but would a story about peace help you a little bit? If so, you can turn your Bible one page, Luke chapter 2. There's a man named Simeon. We don't know everything about him, but he was a righteous man, Scripture says. He's in the temple. He's seeking God. This is verse 25, and this will give you a picture of peace. Verse 25 of Luke chapter 2 says, There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for the child the custom of the law, then Simeon took the child into his arms and blessed God and said, Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people, Israel. This is somebody that had peace because they have the potential for a right relationship with God. They can be reconciled to God. They can be friends with God. They can believe in God and they can worship him and have their heart in the right place. But they also, he's resting. He's saying, I have seen the arrangement of God's circumstances in my life. He's done what he wanted to do. The earth is the way it needs to be. And he's resting saying, it has changed. That's a picture of peace. That's somebody who's living in peace. He had a promise from God. He's been anticipating this promise. None of his circumstances changed. He didn't suddenly become younger, wealthier, happier, or whatever. Like none of, we, we don't have any evidence for any change in his life, except he said, now God has done what he promised, and I'm resting in it. These are the two pillars of peace. A Savior has come, and God orchestrates circumstances to accomplish his will. These are the pillars of peace. And these remain in our lives today, and that's why I want to focus in on verses 32 and 33, going back to Luke chapter 1. I'll read them again. Luke brings these to us, and he speaks of Christ. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Christ is on the throne because the Father gave him the throne. Christ's gift from God inaugurates peace. He is so gifted, so powerful, so wise that he brings peace. But how did he get this way? Well, he sits on David's throne, the Bible says. But if we're honest, that's a little confusing, this idea that he has a kingdom that will never end. He's sitting on David's throne. Well, here's the thing. God gave David the throne. God picked David to be the king. And when and we're going to go into this in a minute, but God promised David, you'll have this throne forever. This throne will be in your family forever. Somebody from your family will sit on this throne forever. And God, in this passage, Luke 1, it says God made Christ king forever. It says that God placed the government on Christ's shoulder. That divine act is why Christ reigns forever. That's why Christ's kingdom will never end. His rule, his leadership, his government will overcome every foe, every struggle, every hardship, every unresolved issue. He's going to fix it all. What about your relationships that have no peace? Or at least don't have peace. Whether you want to borrow one of these books and say, I know what peace is. Or 
you just go, man, I hope they don't call me today. <laughs> hope I don't have to see that person. We got a Christmas card in the mail five or seven days ago, probably, from a person who hasn't spoken to us in years. But they sent us a Christmas card. I don't really want that Christmas card. <laughs> I'd like the relationship to be mended. I don't understand what happened, but now I get the Christmas card, which is one of those moments where I'm like, Okay, <laughs> what do I do now? This relationship is not the way I thought it would be, but they're sending a Christmas card. Like, is it their lack of social skills or have I missed something? Like, so we had a conversation about it because Hallie felt a little better about it than I did. And I just ended up saying, can you just, can, can we just not have the Christmas card out? Like, I'd just rather not, some of you were like, man, this guy, this preacher is somebody else. You're like, Whew, I think he's reading the Bible, but then he quit because he got upset about this Christmas card. And I'm, you know, I end up just saying, if Jesus isn't bringing peace in our relationships, what then? And as we began in worship today, I was thinking back to different people this week that have not had the most peace-creating kind of weeks, like we want, like we think of as peace. And as I prayed and as I thought through the Christmas card and asking to not look at it and all that kind of stuff, I want to I kind of walk through this because at the end I realized with Jesus we can have peace about our relationships even if we don't have peace in our relationships. But that is not easy to get to. I hope you see the difference, but we're going to try to walk through this. All of these I am drawing from Scripture, not from my own uh, kitchen frustrations or living room frustrations here. I am drawing these from Scripture. As I think about a Christ who's on his throne and his kingdom will never end, the first reality about peace in your relationships or areas of your life where you say there isn't peace, Ben, come on, the first piece is to just say there will be peace. His kingdom will not end. And if his kingdom won't end, then you will have peace. There will be peace because that's the nature of his work as a king. Now, you may not have evidence for peace any more than Abraham did. Remember how last week we said he's standing under all the stars, and God says, you're going to have as many descendants as all these stars. Can you count them? And he's going, I don't even have a son. <laughs> and I'm kind of past that, like, reality, God. Like, that's just not that feasible anymore, you know? You might be feeling the same way about the peace component of your life or your relationships or your family. But there will be peace in your world because Christ's reign wins peace. Don't miss what I'm saying. Jesus will fix it. Some of you who are more detail-oriented or you feel the pain more deeply are wanting to go, how? How? I do not know. I cannot tell you with precision, but I do know this. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sin. And the power of he that is in us is greater than the power that is in the world. So the enemies of Christ are going to enter their eternal future, which is not your eternal future if you're a believer. Your eternal future will be forever separated from them. And if the conflict you have is with believers, the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sins. So it's going, the blood is going to deal with that conflict, going to deal with that issue. And everybody's going to get washed clean. Everything's going to get fixed. A second reason for peace is there can be progress in your relationships. There may not be peace, but there can be progress. You can do the hard work of forgiving people. You can do that even if all that happens is you get free from the captivity of conflict. You can forgive people. You can do the hard work of taking responsibility for your needs and your maturity and your identity and your situation. I talked about this Christmas card. I had to take some responsibility for that. 
part of that was to say, if I keep seeing that, like every single time I walk through the house, like that's not helping me get in the right frame of mind. So I had to take some responsibility, create some space and say, let me not just like look at this over and over again. I need some space. I had to take some responsibility for my own immaturity, probably, but nevertheless. Another thing I had to do that, that, that I can do is straight out of Scripture, which is to pray for them, right? Scripture says, pray for those who persecute you. Now, I don't think the people who sent me the card are persecuting me, just to be clear. I don't at all. That's not even close to persecution. Biblically, persecution, whole nother sermon, is not even close to some Christmas card in 2023. But I am saying I can pray for people. I can pray for those people. I can thank God for those people. I can focus on it and say, I'm going to walk by faith, not by sight. I'm not going to let my feelings control my situation. I can talk to the Lord about it, but I can think also what's good in this situation. What's the Lord up to? How is he strong? And my spirit's resisting all of this, by the way. Like, this is not the sort of thing outright. I just want to, you know, cancel and move on. But it's a chance to grow. Might be a chance for more patience, a chance for more assertiveness, a chance to say something different or engage the situation, somehow to become more like Jesus because he handled these situations all the time. The other thing I think is that peace comes if we can learn to see people like God sees them, loved but imperfect, loved but just stuff not going right. So you can change. You can make progress toward peace. The Bible says to make every effort to be at peace with everyone. What part of making every effort are you responsible for? Last of all, I think acceptance is possible. And this, again, comes from the idea that Christ is on his throne. We can accept the unfinished business, the uncomfortable relationships, the lack of peace, because if you're, if you're trying to make progress, if you're trying to grow, if you're trying to forgive and pray and thank God and be a person of faith, and he's actually a good shepherd, he's actually sitting on his throne, then you can start to accept the way things are and say, this is being worked out, this is being worked on, God in heaven is doing something, so I'm going to accept it, I'm going to be okay with it, I'm going to learn to live with it. You can have peace about your relationships, just do your best, accept the way things are, knowing under God there's nothing else I could do. You can have peace about your relationships, even if you don't have peace in them. How can you be sure of all of this, though? It feels so heavy and so tough. Well, there's an interesting thing back in Luke chapter 1, again, verses 31, 32, 33 here. Verse 31, I'll start out. The angel's talking to Mary. He says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. Some translations say call. Verse 32, He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. It's right there that I realized, hey, Luke's getting crafty with us. He's trying to get our attention. Those translations where he says, Mary will call him Jesus, but he shall be called the son of the most high. I was like, oh, Luke's getting clever. Not all writers in the scriptures do this, but Luke's one of these guys who likes to pick his words real carefully. And he's like, ah, let me get people's attention. Mary's going to call him Jesus, but he's really going to be called the Son of the Most High. That's his real name. Well, what's the difference with all this stuff? Well, here it is. He's no mere son. There's this idea that Mary will call him Jesus because he's a child. You've got to call him something. 
You don't, you know, right? You, 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 there's got to be some name. Now, for a while, some people just are like, hey, you, get over here, you know? Hey, hey, you know, there's, there's a lack of, but in this case, you shall call him Jesus. So there's that human level. But verse 32 pulls back the divine curtain, and suddenly he's no son of Mary. He's the son of the Most High. It's this astounding reality. God will give him the throne of David. Israel's most victorious, most incredible, most memorable king has someone on the throne for the first time in a long time. Now, where does this promise about a throne come from? I said we'd walk through this business about David. Well, it comes from 2 Samuel 7. You can read along with me if you want to. I'm going to read it just a couple of verses from 2 Samuel 7. While you're turning there, I just want you to kind of get the backstory. In Scripture, God makes promises. Lots of different people get promises. Lots of different situations, God makes promises. But there are certain people at certain moments who get what I'll call a covenant. And it's not me making up the word covenant. Lots of other people smarter than me, people that write these kind of books. You'll see it in here if you want to. People like that write this, and they'll say, these are covenants. 2 Samuel 7, 12 and 13 is one of these covenants. Not just a promise, but this covenant that God makes. Noah got one, Abraham got one, now David gets one. And as people look, they start to realize God's putting something together because he told Noah a little bit, and he told Abraham a little bit more, and he told David a little bit more. And as each one of these covenants goes along, all of a sudden you get the earth-shattering, sun-rising revelation that a king is coming to deliver and rescue and redeem God's precious creation. And little by little, each one of these covenants fleshes out the story. This is revealed in verses 12 to 13 of 2 Samuel 7. God is speaking to David, and God says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after and you get to be at rest and you get to be at peace because like Simeon, you can say, God has done it. God is doing it. I can rest. He's working it out. It's an everlasting kingdom. But there's something else that's relevant. Jesus is committed to winning. God is committed to conquering all of his enemies. The Psalms talk about it. The New Testament talks about it. Daniel 2 talks about it. Revelation talks about it. Listen to Daniel 2. Daniel 2 says, The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. God is going to win. He has started the kingdom that will never end, and the kingdom of his enemy will be defeated. Jesus is reigning. He is the kingdom, and his kingdom will never end. It's a great kingdom, by the way. It's a place where swords get beat into plowshares. It's a place where children play near pit vipers. It's a place where lambs lie down with wolves. Straight out of the scriptures. I'm not just being creative with you. This is the future of the kingdom. Kids won't be in danger next to pit vipers. Like, who would, you know, like, this is not how we act now. Swords do not get beat into plowshares in our world so that people can have life-giving work that's a golden age of agriculture and a golden age of security and plenty and supplied needs. Which kingdom are you in? His never-ending kingdom? That's a reality in your life. 
If you, if you don't know, you can walk up to the edge of his kingdom. You can talk to one of us. You can look through the gates, look over the wall, so to speak, of the kingdom and say, what's life like when Jesus is in control? How do you get to that place where the swords get beat into plowshares, where kids are safe and lambs lie down with wolves? That sounds like a good world. That'll help you understand an answer for yourself. What kind of king is Christ? As we close in worship, to help you reflect on that a bit, I'm going to read to you another key message about Christ as the king. This comes from Isaiah 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 8. Isaiah has this vision from God. He sees the way things will be spiritually. And he says to the people of Israel, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will defeat the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. Told you I wasn't making it up. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. The world of the Christ child, the world of a Pax Romana, had more peace than usual. But the world of the Christ King will have more peace than you can imagine. The Pax Romana didn't last long, but Pax Christus is coming. The peace of David's kingdom didn't last long, but Pax Christus is coming. Pax Christus can't fail. As, I, as you go, I read to you from Colossians 3, verses 15 to 17. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him through God the Father. Amen.